Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Metabolic Health Summit is the world's premier scientific and medical conference on metabolic health and therapies, featuring world-renowned expert speakers, cutting-edge science, an innovative expo, and incredible networking opportunities. MHS is altogether an unforgettable experience for anyone interested in metabolic health. I think Metabolic Health Summit is amazing. It does such a phenomenal job of bringing world-renowned experts in different illnesses and metabolism, real-world experiences, clinicians, patients, paired with vendors who are trying to make this easier for people. You know, I think for everybody who comes, including myself, learns something. Join us January 25th to 28th, 2024 in Clearwater Beach, Florida, or attend virtually. CMEs are available. Go to metabolichealthsummit.com and use the code LINK to save 10% on your registration. Welcome back to another episode of the Metabolic Link podcast. Uh, the interview we have for you today is with Dr. Jonathan June. Dr. June is a pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine physician. He is an expert in the diagnosis and the treatment of sleep disordered breathing and in the care of critically ill patients in the medical ICU. He's a member of the Sleep Fellowship Program and numerous clinical committees uh, and teaches medical students and residents at Johns Hopkins. Dr. June's current research interests include the metabolic consequences of obstructive sleep apnea, hypoxia, and obesity. Dr. June, thank you so much for being on the Metabolic Link podcast. And, uh, and maybe just we can start off, maybe you could define uh, to our listeners, what is obesity hypoventilation syndrome? It was about 25 years ago where I did my PhD in a pulmonary critical care, and this term was new to me. Uh, really, you reached out to me you know, years ago, and I guess we talked about people who had obstructive sleep apnea or OSA were CO2 retainers, and they would you know, have high CO2 during the day and also be hypoxic. But this is a relatively new diagnosis, so maybe describe to our listeners, how do you define it and what are the standard of care and clinical guidelines for this disorder? Yeah, thanks for having me and great question. So obesity hypoventilation syndrome, we can call it OHS to, you know, say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But OHS, uh, you know, so there's the obesity part. I think most people would understand that as a, just a high body mass index, typically over 30 hypoventilation. So by definition, hypoventilation means not breathing enough, not exhaling enough carbon dioxide. So the job of the lungs is bringing oxygen into the body and getting CO2 out of the body. Uh, for reasons that we don't fully understand, in a subset of patients that gain a lot of weight, they begin to not be able to efficiently get carbon dioxide out of their body. And they begin to gradually build it up into a state that we call hypercapnia or hypoventilation. Now, many things can cause you to hypoventilate. If you're a smoker and have severe lung disease and COPD, that would be hypoventilation also. Um, so. The definition of OHS is that you have to have obesity, you have to have hypoventilation or elevated carbon dioxide levels during the daytime, and you can't have another reason to hypoventilate. You can't have lung disease, 
uh, and other conditions that would be a better explanation for that. Is there a bicarb limit? So if you're measuring, and I know that, you know, we don't routinely, you know, measure arterial CO2 blood gases. It's kind of like another, you know, add on the insurance companies probably wouldn't, wouldn't want that added on. So is there like a, a, a bicarb limit in the blood or, or what, what, what's the CO2 limit, the bicarb and the oxygen in someone with, that has uh, obesity hypoventilation syndrome? Right. So officially it would require an arterial blood gas showing a CO2 tension of over 45 millimeters of mercury would be considered elevated. Um, now, what you said is true. We don't always have the luxury of having blood gases on everyone. So this diagnosis is often made when someone gets really sick and enters the hospital, and then we're getting blood gases and we see that they have the OHS syndrome. Uh, in terms of surrogates of CO2, yes, we can use the bicarbonate um, or what sometimes is called total CO2 in some labs. Yeah. So the plasma bicarb or CO2 level uh, in an obese individual, this has been looked at. If your bicarbonate is 26 or greater, so the normal range of bicarbonate is more like 24. Mm -hmm. If you're pushing 26, 28, your likelihood of OHS is increased, but that still often requires a confirmatory blood gas because of other reasons to have a high bicarbonate level. Yeah. Once someone's CO2 is high enough, and we often see this because I work in sleep medicine, we also do sleep studies on many patients. So when people fall asleep, that's when we often see the, the signs of this syndrome are that they often have sleep apnea, which is a related diagnosis, and their oxygen levels also decline during the night when they fall asleep because once your carbon dioxide levels come up a little bit or high enough, it starts to compete, so to speak, with oxygen exchange in your lung. So yeah. a hallmark of OHS would be high CO2 and a low level of oxygen as well. In fact, it can get to the point where even your daytime walking around oxygen levels are a little bit low and you might need to be on a little oxygen for some of these patients. Yeah. So with so let's talk about, I did research on obstructive sleep apnea and it, there's a subset, maybe like 10, 20%. I don't know what the, the thoughts are now scientifically. And some people have central sleep apnea. Can you describe... Uh, because we talked about this phenomenon all the time, but I guess we never had a name for it. Maybe in the early 1990s, you know, mid 90s. Uh, how is a obesity hypoventilation syndrome? There were many people with OSA, you know, that have, you know, impaired airway patency with truncal obesity and a large neck and things like that. Uh, how is obesity hypoventilation syndrome different than someone who is obese and has obstructive sleep apnea? Would it be the persistent hypercapnia and you said maybe hypoxia during the day is that how you define it and maybe there's a lot of overlap that's ambiguous yeah. to define <laughs> yeah great question so there is a huge amount of overlap so 90 percent of patients with obesity hypoventilation syndrome have obstructive sleep apnea also now that other 10 percent that don't have osa they are still considered to have sleep disordered breathing and this is a little confusing terminology. So they may not have the classic obstructive apneas that happen in patients with OSA, but they are not breathing enough to get rid of the carbon dioxide and they're building up a little CO2 during their sleep. And that we still consider a, a, a form of sleep disordered breathing, uh -huh. okay? Um, so if you think of a Venn diagram, right, there's a big overlap between the circles of obesity hypoventilation syndrome 
and obstructive sleep apnea. And there's this little sliver of that people out there with it that only have OHS and not sleep apnea, but they're still hypoventilating during their sleep. There's a there's a theory out there that sleep apnea is an early form of obesity hypomodulation in a subset of patients that are very obese. So it's yeah. they fall asleep. The apneas start to build up, and when you have apneas, you're not breathing enough, and you're not getting rid of carbon dioxide enough, and you're sort of retaining a little CO2 that night when you go to bed, and you uh -huh. don't fully get rid of that the next day, and it starts to kind of snowball. And over time, you progress from pure obstructive sleep apnea to this middle state, which is a little bit of hypoventilation just at night, and your bicarb starts to increase to compensate, and then mm -hmm. later on, perhaps with further weight gain, you develop continuous daytime hypercapnia, high CO2 levels, and low lowish oxygen levels as well. Mm -hmm. Now, do these patients typically present with uh, hypertension? And do do does any of them have do they have pulmonary hypertension too? Because I know that could be kind of if you have fibrosis kind of later on. Is that something that's linked with this disease? Yeah, they they do. I think of the classic patient with obesity hypoventilation syndrome as your OSA patient, your sleep apnea patient, but you know magnified by many fold in terms of the severity of their symptoms. They often have most of the components of metabolic syndrome, like high blood pressure, type two diabetes or prediabetes, um, and you know uh, visceral obesity. Yeah. Uh, so they often present with those with that entire cluster. Uh, they also are the group that I would say is probably the most at risk for development of pulmonary hypertension. You know, whereas your standard patient with obstructive sleep apnea, most patients with mild, moderate sleep apnea are probably not going to develop overt pulmonary hypertension. Um, but your patient with obesity hypoventilation syndrome, because their CO2s are high and they're walking around with low oxygen chronically, they're likely to more likely to develop right-sided heart failure and pulmonary mm -hmm. hypertension. Okay. And uh, what? another question I, I meant to ask you right off the bat, why is it called Pickwickian syndrome? And I, I think it has to do with like a, a novel, maybe a, a Dickens uh, novel yeah. or something like that. Uh, because I looked it up on, uh, I was, you know, when we first connected with you, I was looking on clinicaltrials.gov and it talked about treating uh, Pickwickian syndrome. And that was kind of a new term to, to me too. So. Right, so there was a novel um, by Charles Dickens called uh, The Pickwick Papers. And in this novel were a few characters, one of which was uh, a young man or boy, affectionately called Fat Boy. <laughs> and he was described as a, as a kid that was voraciously hungry all the time, but very obese, ruddy complexion, and falling asleep all over the place. And now it's believed that this was perhaps the first literary description of someone that would now be labeled as having obesity hypoventilation syndrome, not just sleep apnea, because certainly that could be the a case of sleep apnea too, but the ruddy complexion, uh, yeah. that's also anecdotally seen because of the hypercapnia, you get a little bit of a, a reddish hue to your cheek. So that, that that's perhaps one of the things that was uh, why it was called the Pickwickian syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Uh, before we get into like the dietary interventions and the treating of the obesity, uh, maybe it, like 
when was it clinically defined? Do we have guidelines for the standard of care for this? And like, did does this terminology exist in say mid 1990s <laughs> when I was uh, yeah. kind of studying this? I, I don't remember this this particular disorder. Yeah, I believe that the first descriptions of obesity hypoventilation syndrome or Pickwickian syndrome were mid 80s. Uh, okay. The term was still early and people were still figuring out what to exactly label this um, and also how to manage it. So yes, there are currently guidelines. Um, the guidelines more or less say that anyone with suspected OHS, uh, and that suspicion can come from an elevated bicarbonate level, by the way, and a high body mass index, should undergo diagnostic sleep testing because most of the time you're going to be finding someone that also has concomitant severe sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Then the management of the syndrome, obviously besides weight loss, which we know is very difficult to achieve, but that is going to be one method of tackling this. The other is to make sure that during sleep, they are uh, optimized as much as possible. That optimization can include using CPAP on the face to open up the airway, make sure it's not obstructed. It can involve using another type of support called bi-level or BiPAP. So extra air getting pushed into the lungs. It might involve wearing oxygen. Okay, uh, so it's non-invasive, non-invasive ventilation. And then CPAP for the listeners is a continuous positive airway pressure system. And it's quite common with OSA. Yeah. Exactly, and, and another point about what type of support, non-invasive support you might need at night. So kind of getting uh, or further reinforcing the point that obstructive apnea and the upper airway is a big component of this. If you take patients with obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, and you treat their sleep apnea for those that have it with CPAP, um, and that's all you do, you will actually correct many of those patients' hypoventilation with just CPAP. You know, in pulmonary medicine, we think of bi-level or, you know, some we have to like blow the CO2 down with extra support. But just the act of getting rid of the upper airway obstruction addresses, I would say, in maybe up to half of wow. cases, the hypercapnia gets better. Um, mm -hmm. And even in randomized trials comparing CPAP to BiPAP or bi-level, uh, the outcomes so far have looked pretty similar in terms of looking at gas exchange hospitalization and some other outcomes. So the jury's still out about exactly when to use BiPAP versus CPAP, but it's still clear that some level of positive pressure therapy is needed and, and sometimes yeah. CPAP is enough. What about uh, drug therapy? There is acetazolamide, I think, and maybe what about like uh, uh, GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic and things like that? Are, are these things being explored? Right. So there are no currently uh, standard of care pharmacotherapies for OHS um, or OSA for that matter, although I think that is going to change soon. Um, so in terms of drugs like Diamox, for example, or acetazolamide, uh, that has been looked at. We do know that in short-term studies that that can stimulate breathing and can improve um, the respiratory drive in some of these patients, it can lower their CO2 and can even treat some obstructive sleep apnea. It can sort of stabilize the upper airway and 
perhaps activate breathing and uh, by doing so activate muscles of breathing like in the tongue so cetazolamide may have a role um, in terms of other metabolic therapies like glp1s i mean that is a, a whole new frontier and because of the magnitude of weight that is uh, possible to be lost with those drugs i think that there are going to become um, medical indications for sleep apnea as one of the medical indications for that there have already been a couple studies that have looked at a few of the different agents um, like semaglutide in the, the improvement of sleep apnea. And, and so far, those studies have shown that with significant weight loss, there is a reduction in the severity of sleep apnea. There's a metric that we call the apnea hypopnea index mm -hmm. or AHI, which is how often is the breathing shallow or stopping. That does get a little better and, and not surprisingly with, with weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're very biased, uh, you know, at the Metabolic Health Summit and, you know, the network of people that we're building in that uh, many different diseases, you know, in, in our lab, it first started with ketogenic diet and seizures. So I think this would be a good segue maybe to get into, to dig into what you're doing and also just to simply ask a question is that, is this uh, a metabolic health disorder? I mean, should the standard of care be aggressive and rapid weight loss that could be bariatric surgery that could be uh i guess stated another way if if these patients lost 25 percent uh if they reduced their bmi by 25 percent would that cure the large majority if not all the patients who are presenting with obesity hypoventilation syndrome and should we really instead of focusing on uh, non-invasive, you know, ventilation, CPAP and other things, should we aggressively partner, you know, with obesity clinics to, to just really focus on, on the weight? And I know that's really hard, especially in underserved, you know, populations and things like that. So the short answer is yes. I mean, we do need to have a multi-pronged approach to these patients. And I would say that's not only true of the OHS patients, but even your bread and butter, quote unquote, sleep apnea patient. We focus so much attention on, are you wearing your CPAP? But we're, uh, you know, I think not enough of the time are we uh, hammering home the message that you probably have sleep apnea because of the obesity. Um, and, and it's just that much more important with the uh, obesity hypoventilation syndrome patient. Yeah. So I think it's two pronged because regardless of what weight loss approach is taken, it will take time. Um, even rapid, by rapid, we're talking weeks, if not months, right? But even rapid weight loss is probably not enough to get someone out of the woods who presents to the hospital. So we see a lot of these obesity hypoventilation syndromes present in what I would call an exacerbation or a flare, so to speak, where they come in, their pH is 7.15, their CO2 is 90. So way off, they're, they're in acidosis they're volume overloaded and they're in the ICU and we have to work aggressively to reverse that with either intubation or with, uh, you know, non-invasive ventilation, oxygen, and a lot of diuresis. Uh, that's a very fragile period for these patients. They can die. Um, yeah. And what we need to do when we transition these patients to the stable and more outpatient setting is set them up for success so they don't bounce back in the very short term, that does involve making sure they get discharged on either oxygen or positive pressure therapy. Yep. But at the same time, I agree with you, we should be telling them, this is a weight problem, and you need to, this is not going to get better without 
dramatic weight loss. Yeah. So transitioning now to the implementation of therapeutic ketosis, and that could be done with uh, a clinical ketogenic diet, perhaps exogenous ketone, perhaps the, you know, the combination of the two. Do you think that, or maybe just let's dig into your research and how you kind of steer towards dietary therapies for these patients? Sure. So we were looking at some old literature that was actually published in the 1970s in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that starvation ketosis, uh, and by that in, in this journal article, it actually meant asking uh, subjects to not eat for several weeks, eat a very hypocaloric diet for several weeks. Um, starvation ketosis actually stimulated breathing and actually improved the carbon dioxide sensitivity of obese patients. So one of the defects I didn't get to mention before in these patients with obesity, hypoventilation syndrome is they're just, they, their brains kind of develop a new set point and they are now living chronically with high carbon dioxide levels and chronically with insensitivity to high chronic carbon dioxide levels. Meaning if I give you a brown paper bag and have you rebreathe your own CO2, you're gonna be very uncomfortable and you're gonna to need to breathe a lot against that. Yeah. And patients that are compensated, they've lived chronically with high CO2 levels, they develop a blunted sensitivity to carbon dioxide. And in the subset of patients with severe obesity, that is believed to be part of the syndrome. We don't know how it got there, but we do know that once you have OHS, your sensitivity to carbon dioxide is blunted. So mm -hmm. in this paper from the 1970s, patients were put on a starvation diet and I believe four or so weeks after they started eating very low calories, um, they developed a lowering of their CO2 levels and an enhancement of their carbon dioxide sensitivity. Um, now, naturally, they lost a lot of weight as well, yep. you know, which makes it hard to always know how do we, what do we uh, attribute the success to. Interestingly, though, after they completed this diet, they were allowed to refeed. So, and that period was relatively short, a few weeks. And during that refeeding period, these improvements reversed. <laughs> the CO2 sensitivity went back to being dysfunctional. Carbon dioxide levels came back up a little bit as well. Um, I should emphasize that these patients that were studied in the 70s would not have made the diagnostic cutoff for what we would now call OHS. So it was probably a more mild group that they, that was being studied. Okay. Um, regardless, it kind of gave me the idea that, you know, if, if a ketotic state could at least provide this acute or transitory benefit to breathing, maybe we could achieve it another way, right? Um, and obviously the first thing to try would be a ketogenic diet. You know, so we um, partnered with one of our nutrition researchers, Bobby Barron is one of our nutritionists mm -hmm. here that's done a lot of work in epilepsy. Yep. Um, so we asked for their help to create a high ratio ketogenic diet. And we deliberately kept it short. We wanted to say two weeks. You know, we really want to enforce adherence for two weeks and just see can we recreate the same thing that was shown in the other paper? Um, so we recruited uh, about 20 patients with obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, asked them to eat as they normally did for a week, then asked them to switch to a ketogenic diet for two weeks, then go back to eating the way they did for the final week, so four weeks total. And we measured at different time points through this period 
blood gases, sleep studies, and body composition, as well as metabolism through a uh, hood. Yeah. Um, so the long story short is we found that a short-term ketogenic diet did lower the carbon dioxide of these obese patients with OHS. Um, we did find that during sleep, their sleep apnea was milder than before. Their oxygen levels were a little bit higher than they were before. Um, and we saw that these effects were dose dependent. So the more uh, ketotic people were, the higher their BHB levels were in their blood, um, the better. And the respiratory response to CO2 was amplified then, or did, did you look at that? So unfortunately, we didn't measure that in the study. Um, part of the reason was it was in the midst of COVID-19 and we didn't have the ability to really do, you know, respiratory circuits uh, during the study. Yeah. Um, but we would like to do that. That is going to be one of the future wow. studies that we'll do. Do, do these patients have an altered uh, hypoxic ventilatory response too? So in some, it's not been uh, consistently shown. Um, in a few studies, yes, it seemed like both the hypercapnic and the hypoxic ventilatory responses were, were reduced, but not, that has not been consistently shown. It seems like the defect is probably more on the CO2 side than the, than the oxygen side. Okay. But some studies have shown it. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I'd be really. So I guess that brings up the question then as, you know, therapeutic ketosis potentially modulating the neural control of respiration. And maybe I always wonder, you know, is it a blood flow thing too? We know ketosis increases adenosine and maybe there's like, I don't know, endothelial dysfunction associated with these patients and it's kind of reversing some of that. So, so maybe you're getting greater perfusion and just greater transport of oxygen and, and CO2. Um, any ideas on like speculation as to the mechanism that this acute intervention uh, increased uh, sensitivity? Do you love learning about metabolic health? So do we. It's why we created the Metabolic Initiative, an online educational platform providing evidence-based education on metabolic health and therapies for healthcare professionals and the general public. By joining the Metabolic Initiative, you'll gain access to hundreds of expert lectures, interviews, panel discussions, and even private episodes of the Metabolic Link. CMEs are available. Go to metabolicinitiative.com to get started. And as always, Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Link. Switching people to primarily fats over carbohydrates does unload your respiratory system in the sense that more carbon, less carbon dioxide is produced mm -hmm. per mole of fat compared to sugar. So there are some studies that have shown this in COPD patients that we've known from the 70s, putting people on high fat diets made them walk a little further. Um, allowed them to breathe more efficiently. So your, your body's just producing a, less, a little bit less carbon dioxide. Um, and we did actually show that with the calorimetry. When we measured the CO2 production, we saw that the respiratory quotient, which is the amount of CO2 you're producing, uh, normalized to the amount of oxygen you're consuming, that went down. So that's mechanism number one. Maybe you're just making less carbon dioxide. Uh, mechanism number two would be uh, maybe there's a stimulation of breathing. Maybe there's an actual sensitization of the brainstem 
to make you breathe more. That could be through the pH dropping with a little bit of acid buildup. Uh, it could be some effect that we don't yet know with ketones um, on the brainstem that actually stimulate respiration. Uh, and number three would be sort of uh, what you alluded to. Maybe there's some mechanical, some um, you know, blood flow or physical properties that are changed in the lung as a result of this. Uh, we certainly saw several kilos of weight loss, a lot of which was water, during the, the diet. So yeah. we can't really cross off weight loss as a as a component of this. Uh -huh. um, but So those are all possible. I think the most interesting one to me would be whether or not it could be the stimulatory effect of ketones on breathing. Because if that were true, then we might be able to reproduce this data again without actually forcing people to eat a ketogenic diet, but do it exogenously. So that, that would be certainly one interesting um, experiment we'd like to do. Yeah, I, it, it brings to mind like, you know, the ketogenic diet may work by changing the neuropharmacology of the brain. So there may be changes in, for example, the serotonergic system or the dopaminergic or, you know, hormones like uh, orexin or leptin. And, and these things may, you know, it, 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 it may be a, a synergistic, like I always say, uh, I think it was Dr. Zhang Ro talked about like the ketogenic diet is not a magic bullet. It's like a magic shotgun. So you have many different mechanisms kind of working in synergy to create an effect. So that's why it's hard to, uh, that's why the ketogenic diet is difficult to, it's not very druggable, right? So <laughs> drugs usually work where the ketogenic diet is kind of pleiotropic. It has, you know, multi-mechanism, even, I mean, our lab studies epigenetic mechanisms, how, you know, ketones interact with histones and, and various enzymes. Uh, so has there been any uh, potential for exploration? And, you know, and this may open up the opportunity to use different pharmaceuticals too. Uh, so I was involved in studies that were using serotonin, serotonergic drugs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and I think Paxil. I mean, this goes back, I got to look at my calendar, but like 30 years ago. Uh, and I was like a control where you took like two weeks of the drug, two weeks of the placebo. Uh, I could feel that I was on something, but that we measured like serotonin. But the idea was that when you sleep, your serotonin levels drop and then serotonin innervates the genioglossus muscle. And then, so you drop serotonergic tone at night and then your tongue can fall back, you know, so airway patency decreases like that. So it makes me think that, you know, the diet does profoundly alter neurotransmitter systems. So that could be like another thing to explore with these patients. I could imagine dopamine. I have a scan of dopamine in the brain and dopamine is like so much lower in patients that are obese and just like, you know, the sensitivity of these neurotransmitters. So it may be just amping the gain of these neurotransmitters involved in autonomic regulation. That's where my mind goes when I start thinking about it. It'd be very interesting if, if true. I mean, uh, to, to your point, you know, one of the drugs that is making its way to the FDA for treatment of sleep apnea is an agent that is, a, you know, has um, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor properties and as well as anticholinergic properties. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, a, it's a combination of uh, adamoxetine um, and oxybutynin. Um, this combination has been looked at and it's been shown to acutely improve obstructive sleep apnea. So again, we think of obstructive sleep apnea as an anatomical problem. It's the tongue, it's the, it's the plumbing, yeah. but it's actually a lot more than that. If you get the nerves to fire uh, at the right time, same person, same airway, <laughs> you can yeah. actually treat sleep apnea by simply 
hitting the right neurotransmitters at the right time. Uh, could ketogenic diet or ketones do that? You know, possibly. It is interesting. You brought up leptin, which is another hormone that we have interest in. Uh, there's some work I've done in, in mice long ago with my mentor, um, Seba Polotsky, showing that leptin is uh, defective or, or um, the brain is leptin resistant in patients with sleep apnea and obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, and actually putting leptin back into an animal uh, reverses it. Um, now, humans aren't the same. Humans don't have leptin deficiency as much as they have resistance. Um, so yep. there's not yet a known role for giving leptin back to people to improve their breathing. Um, but we did measure leptin in our study. And um, interestingly, it, it decreased during the ketogenic diet. It went back up um, when the diet was over. I think that's consistent with, with what we know the insulin access to do to leptin. Um, yeah. But it, it uh, sort of told me, okay, leptin is probably not involved as a primary player in the effect that we saw. It certainly didn't increase leptin. Um, so it's either that the leptin is not involved or maybe the brain got more sensitive to leptin and, that, and that's what allowed it to go down. But so we, well, we're looking at other pathways. Yeah. If you lose weight, uh, the loss of adipose mass will correlate with a decrease in leptin typically, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah, we typically see that. Exactly. Uh, so what do you what do you envision as kind of on the horizon maybe like what are you doing now and and what is sort of like the the plan for investigating the uh the cause and and most importantly you know the treatment of the, of this yeah so with regard to obesity hypoventilation syndrome you know i would be interested in how we can apply this data to therapy um I think ketogenic diet would be very difficult to implement at a large scale or acutely in the hospital, that kind of thing for this treatment. So I'm very interested in whether or not exogenous ketosis could do this. Um, so I am in the process of, you know, trying to start up a study that would look at ingestion of exogenous ketones prior to sleep. Um, and we would be actually looking for patients that not limiting our scope to obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, but the more common sleep apnea, because we, yeah. I'll be honest, I did not expect to see a signal uh, in just a two-week diet to really affect nocturnal sleep apnea, and we actually found that. So, you know, that really got me fired up because I thought, you know, sleep apnea is probably affecting a billion people worldwide. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the estimate. Um, if there's another way to approach therapy that... Uh, would, you know, provide another route other than CPAP and the other therapies that are very difficult to use, you know, that would be uh, really great. Uh, so that's one one thing I would like to like to do now is look at studies to see even on a small pilot scale, what does ingestion of ketones do to the nocturnal profile of ketones? Mm -hmm. How well is it tolerated? Uh, what does it do to sleep? And, and what does it do to breathing during sleep? Mm -hmm. Uh, it's an area that is actually somewhat new to me. I don't you you may know of more studies than I do, but I can't find much literature out there that looked at exogenous ketosis um, and the impact on overnight, you know, metabolism or overnight sleep and objective or subjective sleep quality, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Well, I have an inbox of anecdotal <laughs> data on this just from patients like over the years. Um, I mean, just even like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, I think it was a, a, a patient, uh, Russell Winwood had reached out to me in like 2015 and he was diagnosed with COPD and we actually got Peter Barnes to, uh, he's like kind of an icon in COPD to be the senior author on, on our on our paper, the case report. And, you know, he was reporting his FEV1 increased significantly. And that's really like unheard of if you have COPD. So, so these things inspired me to kind of revisit respiratory, you know, physiology. And I, and I just think that there's so many ex expanding opportunities for metabolic therapies, uh, dietary ketosis in, in particular. And, you know, some people, I think in the weight loss world are like the ketogenic diet's not magical. There's nothing magical about it. People lose weight because you produce inadvertently produce a calorie restriction effect. But in the context of epilepsy, you, you know, there is no, you can't calorie restrict like a vegan diet, uh, you know, diet X does not produce uh, anti-seizure neuroprotective effects. So there's something very unique about the ketogenic diet altering metabolic physiology and thereby altering the neuropharmacology of the brain too. And, it, and I think, and it has perhaps very unique, this could be like the low hanging fruit of applications here because you're hitting two different, it's like a bi-pronged approach, right? You're changing neurotransmitter systems, perhaps am amping up the gain and treating that fundamental uh, pathology of obesity. That's, that's the main driver of this. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that everyone's on this quest to find like the the panacea, the magic bullet to treat many of these disorders. Or I think people are right. There is not one diet that is superior to all. But I think that um, certainly there are strategic diets and, and yeah. patients with respiratory disease that like COPD, like obesity, hypoventilation syndrome that have issues with CO2 clearance. Um, it, it at least makes sense from a theoretical standpoint why you would want to limit your carbohydrate intake and, yeah. you know, thereby produce less carbon dioxide in your body. And potentially, if, if ketosis has this, this other independent effect, stimulate, you know, breathing in a different way. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, some of the re research that we do, too, is the interaction between oxygen chemosensitivity and CO2 chemosensitivity and uh, my mentor studied uh, CO2 sensing neurons like, you know, there's CO2 sensing neurons in the ponds, in the NTS, on the ventral surface, obviously, but they're kind of peppered throughout the brain, not just at the ventral surface. I think we just still teach that to the medical students, but uh, CO2 chemosensitivity is all over. And then oxygen chemosensitivity at the carotid bodies, uh, but also there's, you know, oxygen sensing neurons in the brain too. And I, and I think maybe it's... Uh, We've looked at high levels of reactive oxygen species and inflammation can alter the sensitivity and knock down the gain of these systems. And I think my speculation is that's what's happening here, like dietary interventions profoundly lower, you know, certain uh, cytokines and chemokines and just alter redox pathways and inflammation. So I, I think there's a lot to unpack and, and to understand there too. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think that's a very... Uh, fruitful area of, you know, research. Of course, you can't take the brains out like we do in rats and, <laughs> and study these things. But, but I, I think there's a lot going on there, you know. Definitely. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the body's sensitivity to carbon dioxide and 
oxygen are still a mystery. You know, uh, there's a gross yeah. oversimplification that everything about O2 is in the carotid and everything about CO2 is in the medulla. And yeah. there's a lot of cross talk between those two pathways. But I think that um, what would be very interesting to me would be to formally study these pathways during, you know, dietary ketosis and uh, exogenous ketosis and understand what happens to that. You know, breathing stability, I think, is really the concept that I'm after because during sleep, you know, sleep is sort of like the way that you unmask what is the uh, set point of the breathing centers because you take yeah. out all of the exogenous stimuli, the environment, the stress, the way you're thinking, and you just breathe as your body requires, right? Um, so yeah. what's interesting is there are many states of respiratory instability that become unmasked by sleep. When you fall asleep, are you so, are you just uh, maintaining a very stable breathing pattern or does the breathing become shallow and, and blocked, that's obstructive? Or does it become yeah. this cyclic, too much breathing, too little breathing pattern that we see in central sleep apnea? Yeah. Uh, or high altitude, that's often seen as well. Um, and that, that's a whole other arena that that I'm interested in as well, that, you know, for example, what would uh, dietary ketosis or other forms of ketosis do to breathing stability at high altitude? Yeah. It might have a similar effect as Diamox, which is actually prescribed for people before they go to high altitude. Be yeah. Very interesting. And, and I think of other disorders, and I have to really jog my memory, but like chain Stokes breathing. And I remember like, I mean... There's like a number of different, you know, and COPD is, has been, you know, of interest to me um, and asthma too. I think asthma is, uh, that could almost be a low hanging fruit because I have, I have parents that tell me, you know, they got their kids off sugar and they put them on a ketogenic, well, they call it a ketogenic diet, but it's just, you know, a very low carb diet and their asthma improves significantly. So yeah. I, I, I do think these dietary therapies have so much potential, which actually brings up a question I meant to ask. Do kids get obesity hypoventilation syndrome? Have you seen it in kids? Pediatricians, that's my disclaimer, but I work with a couple of people here at Hopkins. And, uh, kids are starting to get it uh, because of the obesity issues. They're starting to see some cases in, in childhood as well. It's still quite rare. Um, kids do develop a few other uh, more unusual breathing disorders at young age uh, related to hypothalamic dysfunction. Those are probably more genetic in origin than the adult breathing issues. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's it's quite uncommon in kids, but sadly, it is becoming more common. Yeah. Still rare overall. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, thank you. I mean... Um... What I, we're, I'm so excited that you'll be presenting at the Metabolic Health Summit, and uh, can you give our listeners sort of an idea of some of the uh, what you'll be presenting on and, and some of the data that you have kind of in the pipeline that you might be sharing with us? Yeah, certainly. So I know that's coming up in just a couple months, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, January 25th to the 28th. Uh, listeners, if you haven't got your tickets, be sure to register. They are going fast. So. Sure. So I think what we talked about today was just kind of a sneak peek at the study. Then, and I hope to show in more depth, you know, what we did, uh, look at, uh, you know, figures of what we showed, and, and actually some of the models that we ran with statistics to understand what were some of the things that predicted the improvements that we saw. Yep. Um, 
I would like to promise that I will have more data to show. Uh, I don't know that yet. Yeah. I've been doing a little self-experimentation with ketones and breathing, um, but um, we hope to launch uh, further studies on that probably next year. Okay, great to hear. Well, for people who have obesity hypoventilation syndrome, or uh, if listeners know someone who has hypo, you know, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, is there any resources that you could direct them to? Yeah, I would say wherever you are, I would certainly try to be seen uh, by either a sleep physician or a pulmonologist. Um, and another message to just put out there, if you've been labeled with you know, COPD, it may be a pro it may be an appropriate label, especially if you smoke, but we often see obesity hypoventilation syndrome misdiagnosed. Hmm. All too often, uh, the healthcare uh, provider will say you've got COPD, but if you dig a little further, wait a minute, you know, this patient never smoked and they're very obese and they have all the symptoms of sleep apnea. So uh, just be aware of that for yourself. If you have that suspicion for yourself, don't take COPD for an answer uh, because the therapy is very different. You know, yeah. you need to potentially seek out uh, oxygen or CPAP or BiPAP therapy, and certainly weight loss is going to be a big part of recovery. One other question that occurred to me because I studied opioids too. And so if someone's overweight and obese and they are, you know, we do have an opioid addiction problem and someone comes in and there are CO2 retainers and, and mildly hypoxic, uh, how do you rule out, I guess you just ask them, but not everybody's going to, that, that it's not sort of, could this be, could opioid uh, use actually present as obesity hypoventilation syndrome? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So, I mean, if we're going to be sticklers for medical definitions, we would say that someone that has opioid-related hypoventilation no longer has obesity hypoventilation syndrome because the opiates are now probably the culprit, if not a big player, right? So we think yep. of OHS as a diagnosis more of exclusion. Now, that being said, in real life, people don't read diseases don't read textbooks and you're entitled to more than one problem. And I actually think that the overlap of morbid obesity and all the pathways that we discussed earlier about why your CO2 is blunted, that just gets amplified by the use of chronic opioids. And there are many patients that I've seen that have OHS by the numbers. And then we also see, wait a minute, they're on, uh, you know, 40 milligrams of methadone a day. And, you know, then I'm really worried about the, the double whammy, basically, right? Yeah. Of, of those two processes coming together. Um, so I guess the short answer is yes, they coexist. Uh, people might debate about whether being on opiates and hypoventilating then disqualifies you from having the obesity hypoventilation syndrome label. Yeah. But in reality, you're going to need therapy for both things. The sooner you can get off or wean down from opiates, the better. Um, but it is going to be a very dangerous combination. Yeah. And it, yeah. it might be, I mean, people that are obese have like knee problems and hip problems and they have chronic pain and maybe they're more likely they have chronic inflammation. So maybe more likely to be opioid users too. So that just occurred to me. And, and just, I know opioids are very powerful respiratory depressants and, um, yeah. And it just occurred to me that that could 
could be a big problem. So you yeah. have you have a lot on your plate, <laughs> Dr. <laughs> June, uh, in disentangling. I think respiratory physiology, you have to understand metabolic physiology, the neural control breathing, and just like, you know, I think respiratory phys is like probably one of the hardest subjects for medical students to learn. All the yeah, the CO2 and the and the blood gases and things like that. And to disentangle everything when you have a new patient and and to di to even diagnose the the syndrome seems like it's it's pretty difficult so you're kind of at the cutting edge of of sort of understanding this and i think uh definitely on the right path of, of treating it the right way so i think there's yeah, I appreciate that it's uh, until i became interested in this topic pulmonary medicine is between the neck and, and the diaphragm right yeah 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 <laughs> it's actually a lot above the neck <laughs> oh absolutely uh, a lot of uh, control of breathing resides uh, there and, and understanding that it's a big challenge yep well thank you i know you're extremely busy treating patients and doing a lot of things in the lab and we really appreciate your time that you've taken to explain this disease process and a potential exciting uh treatment or intervention for this disease so thank you all for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Metabolic Link. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it, subscribe, uh, follow us, and put a, a comment in the review. That really helps us get the information out. And uh, we hope that you all join us next time. Thank you.